All right, turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, and we will begin with verse 51. That song that we sang just now, Jerusalem, talked about Jesus on the way. And this is really the theme of the central section of the book of Luke. And it responds to the command of Jesus to take up our cross and follow him. We want to follow Jesus, but what does that look like in daily life? And Luke is answering that question in this central section. It's what you might consider to be the second movement of Luke's symphony of salvation. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, where he would be crucified, resurrected, and ascend to the Father. But instead of giving us a chronological travelogue, Luke weaves for us a thematic narrative. And the implied metaphor of the way, or as we sang, Jesus on the road, describes what it means to be a disciple following Jesus. So let's read from verse, chapter 9. Verse 51 up to verse 62. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village, excuse me, of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, uh, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, we recognize that the shadow of the cross hangs over this entire central section. Because it begins with verse 51, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He had told his disciples in verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. That's why he was going to Jerusalem. And so it is no surprise that a Samaritan village refuses to receive Jesus. They don't want him to go to Jerusalem, not because they don't want him to die, but because he's going to Jerusalem. Jews and Samaritans hated each other, and Samaritans thought that going to Jerusalem to worship at the temple was wrong. But there's something deeper going on. Their rejection of Jesus was foreshadowing 
what would happen to him in Jerusalem. And James and John, the sons of thunder, want to destroy the village. But Jesus rebukes them because he had come at that point to bring salvation by calling sinners to repentance. See, following Jesus demands a radical reorientation of our values. And part of that means we give up our natural tendency to retaliate. Instead, we reflect the gracious character of Jesus and we love our enemies. And we willingly give up comfort and security in order to follow him. That's why Jesus tells the man who wants to follow him, uh, foxes are voles, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you willing to follow me, forsaking comfort and security? Because following Jesus means that we give him absolute priority in our lives. In verse 59 and 60, the man wants to wait until his dad is dead before he would follow Jesus. And as far as Jesus is concerned, no, no. Heralding the kingdom as his follower takes precedence over family ties and responsibilities. And in the last instance, Jesus makes the point that there is no turning back. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. See, Jesus will not tolerate half-hearted followers. He demands, and he deserves, uncompromising commitment. After all, he gave his life for us. And then in chapter 10, Luke records Jesus sending out 72 disciples in order to proclaim the kingdom. Because he is making the point that following Jesus means that we join him on his mission. It is a meaningful task, but it, it is also a tiresome task. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Lots of harvest, not enough laborers. I'm glad that we want to, uh, that, that's the second pillar, right? Engaging in missions, to be part of that task. It is also something that can be dangerous in verse 3. Go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. But our comfort is that at all times we can count on God's faithfulness as He sends us out depending on Him for His provision. That's why He tells them to, to carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And then they don't go from house to house looking for food. It's a figure of them depending on God for provision. It is an urgent task because they don't greet anyone on the road. And it's not that they're going to be rude. The urgency of the task means that they don't have time to stop on the road to chit-chat. They're going to proclaim the gospel. Even if people do not always accept the word. That's why he tells them in verse 10 to verse 12 that they, they wipe 
the dust off of their feet because they will get rejected. But at all times, we are to be representing Jesus. Verse 16, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. And I'm glad that our mission's philosophy is reflecting these realities. As a church, we need to be on mission. It's really why we're here. If we're not on mission, then there is no reason for us to be here. And it's a weighty responsibility. Because if you look at verse 13 to verse 15, it's an issue of eternal destiny. Woe to you, Chorazin, verse 13. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done in, in you, the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will, be exalt, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Those who reject the message of the gospel will suffer God's eternal punishment. And so we join Jesus on his mission because we are grateful for his grace that has rescued us from this same damnation. And it's, and it's a weighty responsibility, but thankfully, we don't bear the burden of success because salvation is of the Lord. And it's not something we earn. The way of Jesus is the way of grace. And that's why, Jesus moved, that's why Luke has Jesus highlighting our reliance on grace as the disciples report their success. The disciples come back and Luke tells us the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. First, let's recognize that the disciples' success is an anticipation of what will be accomplished at the cross. Just as the kingdom is inaugurated in Jesus' ministry but comes decisively at Jesus' cross and resurrection, so too, Satan's defeat is inaugurated prior to its decisive arrival. But you notice the point that Jesus is making. As exciting as healing the sick and casting out demons might be, the ultimate blessing is that their names are written in heaven. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See, superpowers are great, right? But they do not compare to the privilege of belonging to God forever. And it's something that they haven't earned. They receive it because Jesus went to the cross. And you see that being emphasized in verse 21. Because Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and reveal them to your little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. We know Jesus 
because the Father has, by His sovereign choice, granted us grace and opened our eyes to the beauty and greatness of Jesus. And that's what Jesus is highlighting. Verse 22, the Father alone knows Jesus, and by the same token, Jesus alone knows the Father, and He sovereignly reveals Him to those whom He has chosen. Verse 22, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And so His disciples are blessed. For they are seeing what prophets and kings desired to see and hear. They are seeing the person and work of Jesus the Messiah. It's a gift of His sovereign grace. And in case you missed that, Jesus' engagement with the lawyer emphasizes that we are absolutely, completely, totally dependent on the grace of God. This lawyer comes to Jesus and tests him. Teacher, verse 25, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I don't know if you notice that contradiction. At the very least, the lawyer doesn't see the contradiction. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? An inheritance is never earned. It is given. But Jesus plays along. He says, what, what does it read in the law? And the lawyer responds with the summary of the law. Lois led, read Leviticus 19, and it can be summed up very simply. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your might and your neighbor as yourself. Very theologically correct. Jesus affirms him. You have answered correctly. Verse 28. And then comes the kicker. Do this and you will live. And that lawyer is cornered. He realizes, wait a minute. I just got suckered. I can't love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love my neighbor as myself. Well, oh, that's not me. And so just like many of us, he tries to justify himself. He tries to wiggle out and figure out a way to make, to, to, to tell himself that, yeah, I measure up. So he asks, and who is my neighbor? Because if I can define who my neighbor is, then I can limit my love for my neighbor. I, I, I can figure out how, who I should love. And so Jesus tells the story of a man, very familiar, who had been robbed and beaten half to death. And while he was lying on the road, a priest passed by and did nothing. In fact, he, went to, he crossed over to the other side of the road so that he could pretend that he didn't see him. And after a while, a Levite passed by. And the Levite did the same thing. And at this point, this poor man, this poor Jew, is hopeless. The priest and the Levite are the most upright in Jewish society. So if these most righteous of people couldn't care less about him, then who would help him? And then a third guy comes in. Except there's a problem. This third person is a Samaritan. By definition, he is an enemy of Jews. 
What could he expect? What could this beaten, half-dead man expect from a Samaritan who had every reason to hate him? At the very least, he could, he could only wish that this man would leave him alone and not do anything worse. But surprisingly, the Samaritan shows the man compassion. Verse 33. Where the priest and Levite avoided him, the Samaritan doesn't just stop. He renders first aid. He picks him up, puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn. And he even pays for two weeks' worth of lodging with a promise to cover all expenses. And then Jesus asks this lawyer who had asked, and who is my neighbor? So which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now remember, Jews and Samaritans hate each other. So the lawyer, you know when you have to say something and you just, I don't want to say it. He couldn't even bear to say the Samaritan. He could only say, oh, the one who showed him mercy. And D.A. Carson comments, while the man wants to ask who is my neighbor so as to make excuses for himself, Jesus exposes the man's moral bankruptcy by asking a different question. To whom are you neighbor? You see, following Jesus means that we reflect his sacrificial love to the people around us. That's why Jesus tells this man, you go and do likewise in verse 37. But ultimately, we realize that Jesus' challenge, you go and do likewise, is beyond our ability. But that's precisely why Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's going there to die and rise again so that arrogant and self-justifying sinners like you and me could be rescued from our sin and transformed by his redemptive work. And then, and only then, once Jesus has taken over our lives, can we love our neighbor with a love that images or reflects God's love for us. See, sacrificial service as the Samaritan had rendered is driven and motivated by Jesus' love for us. It is grounded in our relationship with Jesus who died and rose again for us. And that's why Luke follows this parable with the story of Mary and Martha in Verse 30, chapter 10, verse 38 to 42. We're very familiar with the story. Martha was bustling about trying to get dinner ready for Jesus and his disciples. And while she's running around, Mary is sitting. Verse 39. Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now, I hope you catch this. Luke is actually overturning social norms. Because he is presenting Mary, not Peter, not John, not any of those boys. He is presenting Mary 
as the model disciple at a time when women were not necessarily encouraged even to learn. And I hope you understand, biblical fidelity demands that we embody God's good design for men and women by honoring each person's giftedness within the parameters that God has set in Scripture. That's what we seek to do as a church. But to go back to the story, Mary is sitting, Martha's running around, and if you've, I've got three boys, so I know how this goes. One of the kids is busy doing his mommy's bidding. The other two are on the iPad. Somebody's going to be complaining, and it's not the kids on the iPad. Martha complains to Jesus. Verse 40. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to stop, to help me. Now, if you're a guest in somebody's house, and you're asked to adjudicate a fight between siblings or couples, that's just awkward, right? Especially since Martha is putting Jesus on the spot by demanding that he take her side against Mary. But Jesus, being Jesus, graciously corrects her. Verse 41, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Realize that Jesus appreciates Martha's hospitality, but he is very gently pointing out that her efforts had distracted her from focusing on Jesus, who really mattered more than the question of whether the food is good or hot. In fact, her preoccupation with serving was fostering her critical attitude towards Mary. And that led to her accusing Jesus of not caring. You notice the progression? When we lose sight of Jesus in our service, we tend to sour on the people around us, and then we get bitter towards Jesus. And Luke is trying to tell us, serving is good and necessary. But Martha has lost the truth that all service must flow out of one's relationship with the Lord, that all service must be rooted in the joy of knowing God as one's treasure and one's pleasure. See, that's how we serve. Following Jesus isn't a choice between service and worship. That's a false dichotomy. It's actually both and. We serve out of our worship, and we worship him through our service. That's why it's a joyful activity. Even when it's hard, even when it's sacrificial, it's still joyful. And, you know, if, if I'm starting to murmur about the work that I have to do, then the problem isn't the work. 
problems me. I need to check my motives. I need to check my relationship with Jesus. And that's why Luke points us to prayer in the next section, in chapter 11. See, God has given us the privilege of prayer so that He may draw us to Himself in relationship. So that we may serve with joy, with passion. And admittedly, this is one of our weaknesses as a church. We're not the best as far as prayer is concerned. And so, we would want to address this. So, we have set aside every fourth Sunday of the month, hear me again, every fourth Sunday of the month for corporate prayer. And we're going to start it next month. <laughs> March 24, we invite you to join us for an hour at 5 p.m. because to, to pray together. Because the best way to learn to pray is to pray together. And Jesus himself is a model of prayerfulness throughout Luke. And his disciples approached him while he was praying and asked, them, asked him to provide a template for prayer that distinguishes us as the people of Jesus. That's why they're asking, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And so Jesus gives a template. He begins, notice, with the joy of being adopted into his family. Because Jesus died and rose again, we are privileged to address the Lord of the universe, the sovereign God, as Father. Confident of his love and care and cognizant of his authority over us. I love the way Paul Tripp describes it. Prayer is where God welcomes his children to talk with him, commune with him, abide with him. It's that holy place where the deepest of worship, the deepest of needs, and the most honest of confessions all intersect with the grandeur and glory of divine love. The heart of prayer is worshipful submission to him, which produces gratitude, humility, vision, and willingness in us. That's what prayer is, and that's what we are inviting us all to do as we gather in corporate prayer. And that's why we pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. We want God to display his glory to all the world by overthrowing evil and by manifesting his righteous rule in, his, in its fullness. See, prayer isn't about submitting our wish list to Jesus. You could do that with a fax machine. In prayer, rather, we submit ourselves to God's purposes wholeheartedly because we are mindful of our neediness. And that's why we pray. Give us each day our daily bread, verse 3 and verse 4, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. We can be confident that God will provide for us our needs because He's already met our greatest need, our need to be forgiven and reconciled to Him. And that forgiveness is the basis of our ability to forgive others. We forgive in order to demonstrate the way that God has forgiven us. That's why Jesus would say, 
Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. It's grounded in the forgiveness he has already given us. Now that piece about give us each day our daily bread is significant because in Jesus' day, people often wondered where their next meal was coming from. We miss that because we're in an affluent society. And because people weren't sure where they were getting their next meal, that's why Jesus feeding the multitude made him extremely popular. We live in more affluent circumstances, but our need remains the same. We need to live by faith in God, depending on His unfailing commitment to us. And let's admit, we don't like being dependent because it takes the control away from us, right? But I have to say that relying on God is frankly exhilarating. Remember, I went to seminary 20-odd years ago. I went to seminary with barely a year's worth of tuition money. And I had no clue how I would finance the other two years. I just had to say, okay, God, if you want me to go to seminary, I'm going. I've only got one year's worth of tuition. The two years, you figure it out. And I was astounded over those three years to see God meeting my needs in completely unexpected ways day by day so that I finished seminary without any debt. In fact, Joelle and I got married in between the last day of class and the first day of exams. We actually came out with a profit. <laughs> and, you know, I went to Jamaica thinking, I don't know how this church is going to support me. But um, when we speak of supporting abundantly, I saw a church supporting me abundantly because a church in the States where I'd done my internship said, okay, RJ, you go to Jamaica. We've been supporting that. We'll pay your entire salary. I'm like, oh, praise the Lord. But you see, that's what it's about. God led me into that very uncomfortable season of life so that he might strengthen my faith in him and draw me to himself. And I'm not special. That's the way he deals with all of us. He loves all of us so much. He leads us into situations and circumstances that are beyond our ability so that we'd have to depend on him. That's why Paul would put it this way in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 9 to verse 10. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. And that's why I'm really excited about the challenge to be a base camp for believers, a lighthouse for the lost. When we think of having eternal impact as a church, that's a mission beyond our ability. But God leads us into that mission because He wants us to give us the joy of seeing Him work things out better than we could ever imagine. So that we as a church 
could learn that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And that's why we pray in verse 4, and lead us not into temptation. Because the truth of the matter is, on our own, we cannot persevere to the end. We are far more weak and vulnerable than we are willing to admit. And yet, we all tend to be like my favorite apostle, Peter. You know, foot in mouth, Peter. When Jesus told him, Peter, Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you with sweet, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail, and when you have returned, strengthen your brethren. Peter's like, no, 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 Jesus, you don't need to pray for me. I got this. I ain't going to fail. And you know the story, right? And the outcome's often just like Peter's story for us, right? We often fail. And so we need to take Peter's, Paul's warning seriously. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It is God's faithfulness that enables us to persevere in faith. And that's why we pray. And the great thing, moving forward in verse 5 onwards, is that Jesus wants to reassure us that God is graciously eager to hear our requests. In fact, He doesn't just hear, He answers our prayers. And that's the point of this parable of the persistent friend. Now, please understand, Jesus isn't saying you got to nag God to get stuff. God is better, more loving than that friend. He is our heavenly Father who delights to give the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? We pray to the one who knows our greatest needs who understands us better than we understand ourselves, and He is determined to give us not what we want, but what is best for us. And that's why He sent His Son. And that's why Jesus set His face to go to Jerusalem. We are weak and vulnerable objects of God's wrath. But Jesus went to Jerusalem so that he may bear God's wrath on the cross on our behalf, pay the penalty for our sins by his death, and rise again so that through faith in him we may enjoy eternal life as members of the new covenant so that we may walk the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus demands total commitment to his mission, it's the way of prayerful dependence and sacrificial service grounded in an increasingly intimate relationship with him who loved us and gave himself for us. So will you not come to Jesus 
and follow him. He is worthy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you are. Thank you for the wonder of your grace, your your eternal commitment to set your love upon people like us. We thank you for the way you adopted us into your family by giving your son and how Jesus lived that perfect life that no one could live so that he might be our righteousness so that we may be accepted by you not just temporarily but for all eternity and thank you that you love us so much that you will not leave us the way we are but you are constantly drawing us to yourself so that you may remake us into the image of Jesus. And that's why you call us to follow Christ. So Father, I pray, work in our hearts, work in our midst, so that we truly would follow Christ. So that through us as a church, the light of the gospel would shine forth that we may invite others to follow Jesus, to know his goodness, to know his love, to rejoice in his greatness. Let's pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.